So today I'm going to read a scripture from Romans 8, 9, and 15. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead, because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For you, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons for whom we cry, Abba, Father. Oh, the word of the Lord. That's the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thanks, Moses. Um, Harry Belafonte passed away this past week, and of course, he was one of the great civil rights leaders. Uh, I read an amazing story that he once told about a turning point in the civil rights movement. In 1961, Robert F. Kennedy became attorney general. But Harry Belafonte and many of the other civil rights leaders uh, were suspicious of him because he had been part of a committee led by Senator Joseph McCarthy, some of you may have heard of him, that was persecuting people suspected of communism. It was a modern-day witch hunt. It ruined a lot of lives, and Kennedy had been part of that. So Harry Belafonte and, and other civil rights leaders looked at Bobby Kennedy uh, with, uh, they saw him as, uh, Belafonte used the word, tainted. <laughs> Today we would use the word problematic. This person is problematic. The idea is that this person is beyond the hope of redemption, and um, in fact, depending on how problematic they are, they might even be beyond the circle of humanity. But amazingly, Martin Luther King persuaded these civil rights leaders to give Kennedy a chance. According to Belafonte, Dr. King told them, although there was much for us to bemoan about his history, it was our task to find his moral center, find if there was a greater truth in who he was, and to work on that and to win him to our cause. That's exactly what they did, and as a result, Kennedy became a huge advocate for the, mo uh, for the movement. So that Belafonte went on to say this, the transformation of Bobby Kennedy for us was very significant. It was a great victory for that which could be done that appeared undoable. It appeared undoable. In other words, they thought Kennedy was beyond redemption. But instead of excluding him, they pursued him and they won him. Now, why is this story important for us? One of our deepest impulses as human beings is that we all want to become the person we're meant to be. 
We have that impulse because we know we're not the person we're meant to be. Another word for this is shame. Shame is the condemnation we feel when the gap between who we're meant to be and who we are is exposed. And in our world, there are a lot of voices out there that, um, that will pile on. They will, they will criticize. They will add to that condemnation. They will um, see people as problematic and, um, and cast people outside the circle of humanity. But the only reason those voices have so much power in our lives is because there's already another voice deep inside of us that's already condemning us. What do we do with that voice? We need someone to do for us what Harry Belafonte did for Bobby Kennedy, to, to be honest with us about the flaws and failures in our lives, but in love to call forth that person that we were created to be. That is one of the main things the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And as we continue our series this week on the Holy Spirit, we're going to look at the very beginning of that process. It's called putting sin to death. Aren't you glad you came this morning? What does that mean? Uh, let's take a look at this very famous passage from the Apostle Paul and learn three things. Putting sin to death means looking back, looking in, and looking up. Okay? Looking back, looking in, and looking up. First, putting sin to death means looking back. Um, we see the idea in verse 13. Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, Paul is talking about putting sin to death. But we need to ask a question. Why is it possible to do this? This is hugely important. Why can we put sin to death? Look at what Paul says right after this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. When Paul talks about being led by the Spirit, um, well, first of all, you notice that little word for? That's a word that means because. The reason we can put sin to death is because we are led by the Spirit of God. Now, when we hear that phrase, led by the Spirit, it's easy for us to think, oh, that means getting guidance for the daily decisions of our lives. Should I date this person? Should I take this job? Should I move to this city? We think led by the Spirit means getting guidance for the daily decisions of our lives. But the main meaning of this is that the Holy Spirit leads us out of slavery to sin. And we can see that's what it means in the next verse. Paul goes on to say, for or because you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, real quick, I understand that the gender-exclusive language, um, some of that might be problematic for some of you, and I promise you that we're going to get back to that. But right now, can we just put all of this together and see what this means for us? Paul is saying that, um, that we can face the very worst about ourselves and put it to death because God has already called us his children and led us out of slavery to sin. That through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, God has already called us his children and led us out of slavery to sin. In other words, um, it's not first you clean up your life, first you um, deal with the sins in your life, first you become morally respectable, and then God loves you and calls you his child. That's how traditional religion works, but the gospel is the opposite of that. 
The gospel says, first God calls you his child. First God loves you. And then because he loves you, God gets to work in your life and he leads you out of slavery to sin. I mean, think about it. Um, You know, when Paul is talking about this, he's talking about the Exodus story, which is all about how God, what did he do? He led the children of Israel out of slavery to sin. In fact, God said to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, he told him, um, Israel is my firstborn son, and I tell you, let my son go. The reason Israel could come out of slavery was not because they could get themselves out of slavery. They needed God to get them out of slavery for them. They could never do it for themselves. In the same way, we could never get ourselves out of slavery to sin. We need God to do it for us. In fact, one of the main messages of the Bible from beginning to end is that by nature, we as human beings are spiritually and morally blind and in bondage to sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't see like the really obvious things in our life. Uh, Of course, we can see really, really obvious faults and failures in our life on a good day, but that's like the 10% of an iceberg that's visible above the waterline. We're blind to the 90% that's beneath the water, and it's that 90% that weighs us down. It's that 90% that keeps us in bondage. We can't see it by ourselves, and we can't get out by ourselves. The gospel says that first God calls us his children and leads us out of slavery, and it's only then, only after the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and wakes us up to the reality of what Jesus did for us, it's only then that we can begin to understand the true nature of our spiritual blindness and our spiritual bondage. Karl Barth was one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. He, uh, He once preached a sermon to a group of inmates at a prison in Switzerland, and he told them a story about a man riding a horse in a snowstorm. This man was trying to get to a town on the edge of a lake so that he could take a ferry and get across the lake to the other side. So he's riding his horse all night long, and he can't see where he's going because it's a blinding snowstorm. So he just keeps riding and riding and riding and riding until finally, off in the distance, he sees some lights. And when he finally gets to the town, he asks the woman there, how much farther to the lake and the ferry? And the woman looks at him, and her eyes get real big with terror, and she says, what are you talking about? The lake is behind you, covered in ice. You just rode your horse across it. And when the man hears that and realizes what he survived... He's so overwhelmed that he just collapses on the spot. Friends, putting sin to death begins by looking back. It begins with this realization that we've been saved from icy death in a frozen lake. And that the whole time we were standing on top of this lake, oblivious to our danger, and that it's only through an astounding display of grace that we have been rescued to safety. And the only way we can understand our danger is after we've been saved. Only then can we look back and see the danger we, in, we were in. In other words, um, you never know you're in darkness while you're in darkness. You never know you're dead while you're dead. It's only after we come out into the light that we can realize we were in darkness. It's only after we come alive that we can realize that we were dead. But once that happens... 
you begin to see more and more and more because the Holy Spirit comes into your life and enables you to see and to come to a greater understanding of the real depths of our uh, blindness and our bondage. And that leads to our next point. Uh, Putting sin to death means looking back. Secondly, it means looking in. Let's come back to verse 13 once again. Paul says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, when Paul talks about the flesh, he's not talking about the body, which is really confusing to us because right after this, he does talk about the body. So what's going on? When Paul talks about the flesh, most of the time he's talking about a whole approach to life. Um, And we see that, actually, if we go back to verse 9, at the beginning of the passage, Paul says, and by the way, he's talking to Christians. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Notice, you can either be in the flesh, or you can be in the Spirit. This is talking about two different approaches to life. Or we could put it like this. This is talking about two different stories that shape the way we see the world and the way we live our lives. For instance, um, if we say that somebody is stuck in the past, do we mean that they took a time machine and they are now literally living in the past? Of course not. It's a way of saying that, that somebody's life has been shaped by a story that still dominates the way they live their life today. So here's what this means. To be in the flesh means that is to have your life shaped by a story that pursues human-centered goals by human-centered power. And you realize that's our whole world. I mean, our world is all about um, you writing the story of your own life and pursuing your story, your goals, and your power. Paul says that if you live your life according to this story, you will die. Not just physically, everybody dies physically, but spiritually, because this is a way of ejecting ourselves from the presence of God in our lives. But to be in the Spirit means to have your life shaped by a story that pursues God-centered goals by God-centered power. That means to have your life shaped by a story that, so that you're living in a story uh, about what God is doing in this world. So you can either live your life according to the story of the flesh or according to the story of the Spirit. But here's the question. How do we actually live out these stories? The answer is with our bodies. How do we live our lives in this world? We are embodied creatures. We live our lives in this world with our minds and our thoughts, with our hearts and our emotions, with our words and our actions, and all the things we do in this world. We're embodied creatures, but the way we live our embodied lives is always shaped by a story. So, for instance, neuroscientists are showing more and more how trauma hardwires our bodies. Trauma hardwires our nervous systems. Trauma literally programs a story into our lives that shapes the way we see the world and the way we live our lives, oftentimes without us even being aware of it. So, when Paul says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. When he says that, he's talking about exposing and killing the ways that our bodies have been hardwired by the false story of the flesh. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit takes us by the hand and says, let's go deep. Let me lead you beneath the waterline. Let's 
look in to the deeper layers and things that are at work in your heart. So what does that look like, practically speaking? If you were um, in one of our small groups last fall, you'll remember that we read through a book by Robert Mulholland called Invitation to a Journey. That is a book about spiritual formation, which Robert Mulholland defines as the process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. Spiritual formation is a process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. He goes on to say this, the process takes place primarily at the points of our unlikeness to Christ's image. This means one of the first dynamics of spiritual formation will be, we love this word, (laughs) confrontation. Confrontation. So here's what he says. Uh, He says, through some channel, now that might be a word of scripture, it might be a sermon, it might be another human being, it might be uh, any number of things, but he says, through some channel, the Spirit of God may probe some area in which we are not formed in the image of Christ. Friends, putting sin to death begins by looking back, but it continues by listening to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit guides us to, to look in, to go deeper into the layers that are underneath the layers that are underneath the layers in our lives. So Robert Mulholland goes on to outline four specific and increasingly deeper levels or layers of sin which the Holy Spirit um, addresses in our lives. And the first is this, the Holy Spirit will begin to confront, excuse me, to confront the obvious sins in our lives. So these would, you know, be the really obvious things. These, this is the 10% of the iceberg that we can see. Things like addiction, anger, hostility, cruelty, um, dishonesty, selfishness, harming and abusing other people. These are the things that, like even our world would say, these things are problematic. But second, the Holy Spirit goes deeper and starts addressing sins in our lives that the world would say are, are, are acceptable, but are still contrary to God's vision for our life. So this would be things like living for fame, money, power, or success. This would be things like pornography or hooking up. In fact, I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I was 30 years old, and I I didn't know anything about the Bible. I knew very little about Christianity. Um, And I was talking to a, a Christian friend who was explaining to me for the first time how the Bible teaches that sex is only for marriage, and I was just shocked. I'd never heard that before. I thought this was just so bizarre. Like, what? It was so weird to me. And now it's not anymore, but boy, it sure was then. And I was 30 years old. Friends, the Spirit will address obvious sins in our lives. The Spirit will confront socially acceptable sins in our lives. But thirdly, the Spirit will go deeper and begin to probe sins in our lives that are unconscious. These are things that that we're less conscious of, deeper layers of vanity, arrogance, pride, selfishness, self-centeredness. This is where the Holy Spirit begins to reveal to us the deeper motivations of our hearts and our lives so that we begin to realize that even if we're doing things that, that look like really good things to do in the world, we'll begin to realize, oh, I was doing that because I want people to admire me or because I'm insecure about something, or because I want to get control over this situation or manipulate these people, we'll begin to realize these deeper motivations in our lives. But lastly, Robert Mulholland says the last and and deepest level of sin that the Holy Spirit addresses in our lives is what he calls our trust structures. 
These are the, the invisible ways, invisible to us, um, the ways that, that we um, tend to trust ourselves instead of trusting in God. These are the deepest layers of the ways that the false story of the flesh has woven itself into our life, shaped the way we see the world and the way we live in the world. This is getting down into the deepest roots of our anxiety, of our fear, of our shame. It's helping us see how we're really trusting more in control, comfort, power, and approval, or things like that, than we're trusting in God. The Holy Spirit will come and address the deepest layers of the ways that the false story of the flesh has, has insinuated itself into our heart. Now, here's the thing. In all these levels, this is an ongoing process throughout the rest of our lives. We're never done. We never hit bottom. We, we're never... There are always um, deeper levels and deeper layers that need to be stripped away. And that actually leads to our last point. We've seen that putting sin to death means looking back and seeing the danger we were in. It means looking in and seeing the, the continuing sin that we're in. But lastly, it means looking up. What does that mean? Well, remember where we begin, because here's the challenge. Remember, shame is the condemnation we feel when the gap between who we're meant to be and who we are is exposed. And our world is full of voices that are quick to condemn, quick to shame, quick to cast other people outside of the circle of humanity. But those voices are nothing compared to the condemning voice inside of us. Now, please understand, that does not mean that all those outside voices, that they're not culpable for the ways that they harm people. I mean, we're all responsible, every single one of us, for the ways that we dehumanize other people with our words and our actions. We're all responsible for that. But those outside voices wouldn't have nearly the power they have in our lives if it wasn't for the voice inside of us that amplifies those voices and says to us, you worthless piece of junk, don't you know everybody's right about you? In fact, I think that's one of the big reasons that in our culture we have this saying that, that goes, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about you. The only thing that matters is, can you complete the sentence? What you think about yourself. That would be wonderful if it was true. The problem is it's a lie. Because we can never entirely give ourselves the, all of the love that we need. That, that is a voice of love that must come from outside of ourselves and speak into our lives. We can never give all of that love to ourselves. So, for instance, in our culture, we say that, that it's up to us to construct our own identity. Because the only thing that matters is what we think of ourselves. We construct our own identity. And yet, in our culture, we also say that if somebody outside of us refuses to recognize or affirm our self-chosen, self-constructed identity, then that person is actually harming and oppressing us, which means that outside voices do matter. They matter tremendously. We can never give ourselves the love we need. It always has to come from outside of ourselves. We need a voice of love to speak to us. Where do we get a voice like that? Well, look at what Paul says. Remember, he tells us that, um, uh, well, I'm sorry, let me go back to this. What Jesus uh, actually um, tells us in John chapter 14, that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. That means that, um, 
that when the Spirit comes into your life, He's going to show you the truth about yourself. He's going to reveal true things to you. And so we could say it like this, that the, the truth makes it possible to see our sin. And that, that's what the Spirit does in our life. That's what the Spirit gives to us. But if, if that's all we get is the truth about ourselves, then what happens when that, that voice of condemnation inside of us gets hold of that truth? It starts condemning us. It starts shaming us. It starts saying, you worthless piece of junk, how could, you, how could anybody love you? Don't you see the truth about yourself, how unlovable you are? We need some voice, some truth, something else to come inside of our lives and give us the, the, the love, the voice of love to speak into our lives. So where do we actually get that? Now we can come back and look at what Paul says. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, I promised you we were going to talk about this gender-specific language that our culture would find so problematic. What's going on here? In the ancient world, if a Roman man uh, had no sons to inherit his estate, then what he could do would be to legally adopt a son, and that that son, that adopted son, would automatically inherit the estate upon his death. It was a legal transaction in which this adopted son immediately inherited this exalted status of firstborn son. It was a very exalted um, status in the ancient world. Now, of course, we look at that and we say, whoa, that really is problematic. I mean, here's this patriarchal hierarchy. You know, we, we look at that and, you know, we can see how abhorrent that is. Paul is taking this patriarchal hierarchy and standing it on its head because Paul has the audacity to say, well, this may be the way it is in the world, but in the kingdom of God, this exalted firstborn status is available to everybody, regardless of your gender or your ethnicity or your economic status or anything else. It doesn't matter. Everyone can become an exalted firstborn status child of the Father. So here's the question. How does that happen? When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, not only does the Spirit lead us to look in and see the truth about our sin, the Holy Spirit leads us to look up and see Jesus dying for our sin. That's the voice of love that we need. Because who is Jesus? Jesus is the God of creation and the true Son of the Father who was led to a cross so that we could be led to safety. Jesus... Um, all of the condemnation fell on Jesus. He suffered the wrath of the Father so that we could receive the love of the Father. In fact, Jesus lived a life, such a good life, such a beautiful, holy, and loving life that he never deserved even one word of shame or condemnation. We feel shame because there is a gap between who we ought to be and who we are. But with Jesus, there was never any gap and yet Jesus was nailed naked to a cross, exposed in shame for all the world to see. All of the condemnation of the world fell down on Jesus. And not just that, but all of the condemnation of God and all the evil of the world came down on Jesus. Jesus was not just ejected from the circle of humanity. He was ejected from, from the very presence and love of God himself. Because on the cross, all the condemnation fell on Jesus so all the love of the Father could fall on us. Jesus perished in that frozen lake so that we could be carried to safety 
So that now when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, not only does the Spirit speak the truth of your sin to you, the Spirit speaks the love of the Father to you. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Do you realize what this means for us? Remember our question. When we face the deepest, hardest truths about ourselves, what happens? How can we do that without being crushed by that voice of condemnation? The gospel gives us the answer. Truth makes it possible to see our sin, but grace makes it safe. Truth makes it possible to see our sin, but grace, the love, the admiration, the salvation of the Father, grace makes it safe to do that so that now you can look straight into the heart of your own sin. You can do it, but, but without fear, without shame, without condemnation, because you are held secure in an unshakable gaze of love and the irrepressible voice of the Holy Spirit crying out inside of you, you are a beloved child of the Father. So that now we're looking at the truth about ourselves, and yes, there's going to be grief. Yes, there's going to be sorrow. But it's not a grief that tears us down in shame. It's a sorrow, a gentle, wounding sorrow that builds us up in love. Friends, we all need to create space in our lives to listen to the voice of the Spirit. We need to also have a posture of receptivity to that voice so that when that voice comes, and it might come in different ways, are we making space in our lives to hear it? It might come through a word of Scripture. It might come through a sermon. It might come through other human beings. It might come through times of solitude and silence. It might come in a way that we're not even expecting at all. But, but we need to make space, create space in our lives to actually be listening for the Spirit of God speaking to us. And even on top of that, when that voice comes, we need to not shut it down, which we're really good at doing. We need to not shut that voice down. There can't be any rationalization or denial or pettifogging or blame shifting or anything like that, but allowing the gentle wounding spirit of love to transform, it, transform us into something wonderful and new. You know, I mentioned a little bit ago um, about how when I was a brand new Christian, at the time I was living in Southern California and working as a musician, which means that I spent a lot of time driving in my car. Um, at the time, I remember a specific period of time, I, I'd gotten hold of a bunch of cassette tapes. You remember cassette tapes? Um, it was a series of sermons by a certain pastor, and each one of these sermons was on different ways that the cross shapes and, and transforms different parts of our lives. But I was driving around, I remember this, driving around, and for days and days, I was listening to, these, to the message of the cross over and over and over and over again. And here's what happened. At a certain point, I started remembering things. It was almost like a, a video playing in front of my eyes. I started remembering things that I had done five years earlier, 10 years earlier, 15 or 20 years earlier. Cruel things, selfish things, arrogant things, hateful things, wicked things. I had not thought about those things since the time, I had never given them a second thought until the Holy Spirit used those sermons on the cross to wound my heart with sorrow. But it wasn't a sorrow that was just tearing me down in shame. It was a sorrow that was building me up in love. I remember, still vividly remember, like weeping in my car as I was driving around, remembering all these things. 
I, I, you know, I felt the grief. I felt the sorrow. Yes, I even felt the shame. But there was also a love and a grace and a safety that was palpably present. Truth was making it possible to see my sin, but grace was making it safe so that this mortifying wound of knowledge was, was actually becoming a transforming wound of love in my life. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, or even if you're here this morning and you are exploring faith, maybe you're not even sure what you think about Jesus, I want to encourage you that the Holy Spirit is always, 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 already calling to you and speaking into your life. The question is not whether the Holy Spirit is calling to you. The question is, are you listening? Are you paying attention? Are you receptive to this voice? Create space in your life to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Create space in your life to open yourself up to receive the gentle, wounding spirit of love so that you can become the person that God created you to be. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, we thank you for the gentle wounds of love of your Holy Spirit that confront us with the hardest truths about ourselves, but enfold all of those truths in the deepest love that we could possibly need, the love of Jesus dying for us on the cross so that we could receive your love into our lives, Father. For your wounding love in our life is not for the purpose of tearing us down, but of building us up and creating, recreating and transforming us back into the to the persons that you created us to be. So we pray now this morning, Father, that you would help all of us, wherever we're at spiritually, please help us to be open and receptive and listening to your voice, calling to us through your Holy Spirit, calling Abba Father into our lives. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.